This is Competition Law with Professor Karon Beaton-Wells, exploring the challenges in competition policy, law and enforcement. This series looks at the impact of those challenges in a digital economy and on society overall, whether you're a citizen, consumer or competitor. In this episode, Karon dives into the mysterious world of blockchain with Dr. Thibaut Schreppel. Every time you enter something into the blockchain, it is translated into a series of numbers and letters. This is the hash. So now, all transactions in the blockchain are grouped into blocks. The size of the block depends on each blockchain, but let's say that it could be, for instance, 10 transactions between you and me. And once we have 10 transactions, they are grouped into one block. And in each of these blocks, there is the hash of a former block, which is put inside of it. And in the end, because of that, it forms a chain. Here's Karon Beaton-Wells. If you follow or at least try to keep up with developments in technology, and I know many of you do, then no doubt you'll have heard about blockchain, a technology that in its application as Bitcoin can be captivating or alarming, depending on where you're positioned in relation to financial markets. Blockchain is much more than Bitcoin, and it has some fascinating implications for competition policy and antitrust. Before we talk about these, though, I want to try and level the playing field. Anyone interested in the competition aspects of blockchain needs to have more than just a vague inkling about what the technology is and how it works. So I invite you to treat this episode as a blockchain primer for which we're really lucky to be joined by Dr. Thibaut Schreppel from the Utrecht University School of Law. Thibaut's been immersed in this world for some time. And when he greeted me on the line late at night in Amsterdam, I have to confess, he caught me somewhat off guard. So first, may I ask you a question? And then I promise that I will answer yours. Okay. So here's a short extract from a real dialogue yes. between two celebrities okay. dated well, from 95. And let's see if you can guess who they really are. Oh, wow. So one is called D and the other one is called B in that story. So D mm-hmm. is asking, what about the internet thing? What the hell is that exactly? B is answering, well, it becomes a place where people are publishing information Everybody can have their own page. Companies are there. The latest information also, you can send electronic mail to people. It is the big new thing. Mm. To which D is answering, I can remember a couple months ago, there were like a big breakthrough announcement. And on the internet, they said that they were about to broadcast a baseball game. And I thought to myself, does radio ring a bell? Mm-hmm. B is answering, here's the difference. You can listen to the game whenever you want using a computer. To which D is answering, those tape recorders ring a bell. <laughs> so now can you guess who B and D really are? Uh, Tweedledee and Tweedledove. <laughs> <laughs> Someone before our generation? Um, no idea. You have to tell me. Okay, so B is Bill Gates and D uh, is David Letterman. And I bet that you can pretty much find the same conversation between Vitalik Buterin, which is the founder of the Ethereum blockchain that I'm sure we'll discuss, yeah. and some journalists today. 
There you go. Everyone's in catch-up mode trying to work out just what this thing called blockchain is. It sure is the buzzword of the moment, but I'm also pretty sure that there are not many that have more than an inkling just what it's about and where it came from. So let's start with its origin, just who or what came up with blockchain? So that's actually a big question still. What we know is that someone or maybe some group of persons published a paper in October 2008 under the name of Satoshi Nakamoto. The paper is entitled Bitcoin, a peer-to-peer electronic cash system. It's actually only nine pages long, and I would recommend everyone to read the paper, although it gets a little bit technical. But we don't really know who Satoshi Nakamoto is because it is a pseudonym that that person or those persons were using at the time. But it is the first paper introducing at the same time Bitcoin, which is one of the applications of blockchain. Wasn't Nakamoto uncovered just a year or so ago as possibly an Australian? Well, there are different theories. <laughs> and I guess if you are a tech journalist, that's the big thing to be able it's to... It's your s- job to uncover the identity of this mysterious person. It's unclear, to say the least. What we know is that the idea of blockchain is emerging from the 90s. And there is a good short reading called the Cypherpunks Manifesto from 93, explaining basically what will be the idea of blockchain, but not mentioning the word blockchain. So it could be that person as well. We don't know. Wow, it has all the makings of a digital spy movie. Well, I have to confess, when you and I first started talking about this episode, I was certainly in the category of persons who knew very little about it. So I turned to trusty Google and, of course, came up with some podcasts. And I want to play you a grab from one of them, which purported to explain just what it is. It's cryptographically supported, immutable, decentralized database system that creates webs of trust through relationships while pushing self-sovereignty to the edge of the network. So beat that, Thibaut. (laughs) (laughs) Easy, isn't it? (laughs) No, no, don't. Please just tell us in really simple lay terms, what are we talking about here? Okay, so the easiest is for you to imagine an Excel sheet and you can imagine that shit working on a computer on the internet. A bunch of users can access that table. Every time there is a new information put on that table, everyone can see that information live. So here you might say, but what's the difference with regular internet? The difference is that every time one information is put on that table, it is impossible technically to delete that information. So that's one of the big difference. And no one controlled the table. There is, in fact, no one in charge of the table except for all of the users. So that's the basic idea. Just imagine that that database on which you can plug different things that we will discuss today. Okay, so it's like a massive tamper-proof public, in some cases, spreadsheet or database. But why is it called blockchain? What's the block? What's the chain? Okay, so I guess I do have to warn you, this is probably the trickiest part (laughs) and hopefully the most technical part of the discussion. So it won't take more than 30 seconds, I promise. (laughs) So uh, to explain that, I think I need to explain what is a hash. Let me describe what is hashing on the blockchain. Hashing on the blockchain is the process of taking an input, which could be a piece of information, it could be a message, it could be anything 
you wish, and turning that into a cryptographic fixed output. In real life, it is a series of letters, numbers, and signs. The idea is that the same input, so the exact same messages, will always produce the same hash value, the same series of letters and numbers. And in addition, it is statistically impossible to find the input from the hash. So that is why blockchain is secured. So that's the basic idea. Every time you enter something into the blockchain, it is translated into a series of numbers and letters. This is the hash. So now all transactions in the blockchain are grouped into blocks. The size of the block depends on each blockchain, but let's say that it could be, for instance, 10 transactions between you and me. And once we have 10 transactions, they are grouped into one block. And in each of these blocks, there is the hash of a former block, which is put inside of it. And in the end, because of that, it forms a chain. Because all of the blocks do have a print of the former block, which is the hash of the former block. And because of that, it is nearly impossible to hack a former block, because once again, if you do so, it will then affect all of the following blocks because it will modify the hash of a former block. Mm-hmm. So the chain will collapse. Exactly. It will break the chain. It will create what is called a hard fork. And what will happen in real life is that if you try to hack the chain, you will be the only one with the new version of the chain with the information which is not truthful information. And all of the other users, they will still use the chain which is not hacked. That is why it is really difficult to hack a blockchain because you will need to hack all of the blocks on all of the computers at the same time. Okay, so the name comes from its structure and you've got individual records called blocks that are linked together in the chain. Exactly. And each block stores the hash of the block before it and so creates the chain that links the blocks together. Have I got that? Exactly, yeah. Oh, okay. And to add a new block to the chain, you've referred to this process involving inputs and outputs. And here's some more terminology. I've heard that the block needs to be mined. So what is this process of mining? The idea behind it is to say, well, you have a bunch of transactions. Let's say, once again, 10 transactions. We group them together into a block. And before we add the block to the blockchain, we want to be sure that the information is true, that some transaction did happen. Because once again, once the information is on the blockchain, it is impossible to delete the information. So for sure, you want that information to be true. So what happened is that the block, when it is formed, once you have the number of transactions you need, that block is submitted to all of the users on the blockchain. And then there is a game, a cryptographic games. And the basic idea is to say, if you want to be the one verifying that those transactions did happen, you need to prove that your computer is the most powerful. Because I want the most powerful computer to be the one verifying the transaction in the shorter possible time. And that is called the mining, which is the fact of submitting the block to 
the entire blockchain and the fact that one of those users proving that is the most powerful of all of the users will actually verify the truthfulness of the information into the block and will add the block to the blockchain. So that is the mining. So mining is a way of adding blocks or transaction records onto the ledger that is the blockchain and ensuring that they are valid so that the chain doesn't get broken. Okay. So can anyone be a miner if they've got a sufficient degree of power in their computer? Yes, anyone, except that when I'm talking about super powerful computer, I'm not talking about the new Mac, although it's probably a good machine. I'm talking about real giant computers, like, you know, when we described the very beginning of IBM and one computer being the size of a room, we're not talking the same size computer, but still the idea is to say that you will need to invest enormous sum of money into your computer if you want to be able to show that you are the most powerful. So by necessity, there's only going to be a small number of miners making the blockchain effective. Exactly. And the more it goes, the more people are using the blockchain and the more you need to invest in a powerful computer. And these miners, they have to follow, here's another buzzword, a consensus mechanism or a consensus protocol for the blockchain in order to perform their functions of verification. What is this consensus protocol? So the consensus, once again, I'll go back to my example. So you have those 10 transactions forming a block. The block is submitted to the entire blockchain, to all of the users. And the actual way to choose which user will be the one verifying the transactions is the consensus mechanisms. And you have different ones. The Bitcoin is using proof of work, which is, for that reason, the most popular which is what I've described, the idea that you need to show that your computer is the most powerful of all of the computers on the blockchain. But you could also think about different consensus mechanisms. New consensus mechanisms are created every day, but the most popular are probably the proof of stake, proof of capacity, proof of burn. And these newer ones, as I understand it, don't require the same degree of computational power that the proof of work consensus does. It is true. If you talk, for instance, about proof of capacity, what you need to show is that you do have a computer with a lot of free space on your hard drive. If I'm talking about proof of stake, then you need to show that you do own a lot of the tokens or the currencies on the blockchain. Because we presume that if you are engaged in the blockchain, well, you want to be sure that only trustful information will be added to the blockchain. Well, perhaps that's enough of a glossary for now. I know we've just scratched the surface of the blockchain terminology, but before we risk bamboozling listeners further, let's get a bit more grounded and talk about some of the major applications of this technology. I know when most people hear blockchain, they think Bitcoin, but actually this is a general purpose technology that has many other applications including currently, but also potentially an infinite number more. Can you break down the major applications of it for us into categories and perhaps give us some real-world examples? Sure. There is three different categories that I like to use to describe what blockchain can do. Um, The first will be blockchain 1.0. And here we are indeed talking about cryptocurrencies as Bitcoin. The second one will be blockchain 2.0. Here we are talking about smart contracts, which 
are not smart and not contract necessarily. They are simply automatized transactions between two or more users. That's the basic idea. And the third category, blockchain 3.0, will be everything else. It could be a new service competing with Google. It could be a new social network. But if I may, I would like to give you two examples that I really like. One is used already in some of Bangkok neighborhoods. The residents trade energy using blockchain. They store the energy that they generate using solar panel, and then they sell that to their neighbors. And so they avoid wasting energy. And the second one is in a refugee camp in the country of Jordan, they use blockchain to be sure that if people are asking for water, for food, there is no corruption and it's not the second time of the day that it gets the water and the food. When I hear sometimes people say, well, blockchain is useless, it's a scam, and we should disregard the technology, it's nothing new. I'm always thinking, well, it is easy to say when you are sitting in a comfortable couch, but in fact, it is already very useful, if not vital to some people. Now, it doesn't mean that everything that is blockchain related is amazing. And indeed, just one quick example of what is not amazing is the CryptoKitties. And CryptoKitties is just a game running on blockchain where people spend a lot of money just to take care of a digital animal on the blockchain. <laughs> so not everything is great, but to say that blockchain is useless, I think uh, is wrong. From the description of the applications you've given us, it's fairly clear to me that blockchain is actually much more than just a way of recording transactions. It's actually a way of performing transactions, exchanging value or trading between persons or entities. And your solar panel example is a good illustration of that. But you also referred to smart contracts and you said they're not smart and they're not contracts. So I want to come back to that. Um, just what is a smart contract then? So smart contracts is a transaction between two or more, but let's say two persons, which is entered into the blockchain and which will be triggered automatically. So for instance, I might say, if it's raining tomorrow, let's take Australia and not the Netherlands for this <laughs> example. If it's raining tomorrow, I will give you 10 euros. We can enter that into the blockchain and automatically, if indeed it is raining tomorrow, my bank account will send you 10 euros. Wow. So that's a fairly easy example. And of course, you can think about the same transaction with tons of conditions. But the basic idea is just to say that that transaction will be triggered automatically okay, and can't be deleted because once again, it is on the blockchain. So once it is there, it can't be erased. Let's come back to this distinction between public and private blockchains. Explain to us what characterizes each that makes them different. So public blockchain is also sometimes referred as permissionless blockchain. And usually when people discuss blockchain without mentioning whether it is private or a public blockchain, it is because they are talking about a public blockchain, which is the basic idea of blockchain, which is a open source ledger that is free for everyone to use. And so here, you don't need to ask permission to enter or to use the blockchain. It is there. And if you want to, you can do it anytime. If you do want to buy some Bitcoin after the end of the episode, <laughs> feel free to do so. No one can, in fact, prohibit you uh, when we talk about 
private blockchain. Here we talk about a still decentralized technology and registered, which is governed by one or several companies. And those companies can choose three things. The first is who can access the blockchain. The second is who can do what on the blockchain exactly. And the third is who can leave the blockchain or in other terms, if they want to eject someone from the blockchain, well, they are free to do so. Okay. And there is a distinction in the context of private blockchain between a single entity blockchain and a federated or consortium blockchain. That distinction may be self-evident, but can you just explain it to us? The single entity private blockchain is simply a private blockchain run by one company, one entity. And if it is a federated or consortium private blockchain, it is run by several users and they all have equal rights to choose whether or not you can access the blockchain and what can you do as a user on the blockchain. All right. So I think we've got a bit of a picture of what we're talking about. Let's dive into more of its key features that are really important when we come to talk about the potential regulatory or legal implications for this technology. The first feature I want to touch on is the fact that it's distributed. What does that actually mean? Well, the distribution of the blockchain refers to the different locations. So if we talk about a non-distributed system, all of the parts of the system are in the same physical location. And if we talk about a distributed system, then parts of the system exist in separate locations. And that is the case with the blockchain. I think you've described this as the fundamental essence of it, that the computation is spread across multiple nodes or computers, not just one. Associated with this is the fact that it is decentralized. And my understanding of that simply means that no one is in charge. Of course, we're thinking particularly about public blockchain here. Everyone's in charge of the blockchain. Is that right? Exactly. Distribution refers to the location and the decentralization refers to the levels of control over the blockchain. Okay. And a third feature is that it's peer-to-peer, the transmission, the communication takes place between peers rather than having to go through a central authority. What's the particular significance of that for the way in which this system works? In the blockchain, all of the users, they interact directly with one another, which seems to be true on the internet. When I talk to you or to my friends or to some member of my family on Facebook or Twitter or anything else, it seems that I'm interacting with them. But in fact, I do so using a third party, using the platform. On the blockchain, if I want to enter some information on the blockchain, it will go directly from my computer to your computer once it is validated. So it doesn't have to pass through some central node or authority and that cuts out the intermediary. Exactly. The middleman, the middle firm, the intermediary, which is, as you can guess, one of the big economic challenges posed by blockchain to the outside blockchain world. Okay. And another feature of this technology is its immutability that I think you've already referred to several times, the fact that once a transaction is added to the ledger, it can't be 
undone because it's secured through this cryptographic hash or key. Is that right? It is right. But also the idea of immutability is related to the fact that everyone on the blockchain, all of the nodes, have a complete copy of the entire register, of the entire blockchain. So if I manage to enter your computer and to decrypt all of the transactions, I could do so and I could change the blockchain, but I will do so only on your computer. And I won't affect the copy of the blockchain on my computer, for instance. So that is also why, in the end, you can't change the information on the blockchain. Which is what you said before, a major factor in contributing to the trustworthiness of blockchain transactions. What about the feature of anim? I can never say this properly. Anonymity. <laughs> <laughs> is it true that everyone's anonymous on the blockchain? So I'm sure if you enter the anonymity and blockchain on YouTube, you'll find tons of videos saying they lied to you. Blockchain is not anonymous at all. And I've watched some of them. I was intrigued. And in fact, they all discuss the same thing. They say you are not anonymous on the blockchain, but you are pseudonymous, which is that every time you use a blockchain, you have a pseudonym, which is your public identity on the blockchain. So your real life identity is protected on the blockchain. At least it is now. Wow. Clearly, understanding blockchain doesn't just mean learning a whole new terminology. It means really understanding what this new technology can do and how. With that understanding, it may be more obvious to you now why there's so much hype surrounding blockchain. Next on Competition Law, Thibaut and I get hyped up over the promise of blockchain as a potential challenge to the power of digital platforms. But we also talk about challenges it's going to pose for antitrust enforcement. So do stick around with us for the next instalment. As always, you can find the show notes for the episode with useful links to other resources at competitionlaw.com. Competition Law was produced by writtenandrecorded.com and I'm Karan Beaton-Wells. Beaton-Wells.